Chapter 30. If Thanksgiving was wonderful, Christmas was paradise. By now, Grayson had officially moved out of the Y and into 101 Banshell Boulevard. Thanks to his long acquaintanceship with the locker room attendant, he and Maniac were privileged to continue using the Y's shower facilities at their pleasure. For decoration outside, they nailed a wreath to the door. There was only one small window, so it had no sill to hold a candle, so some spray snow had to do. Inside was another story. Santa's elves themselves would have felt at home. Strings of popcorn swooped across the ceiling. Evergreen branches flared at random, dispersing their piney aroma. Wherever there was a few vacant square inches, something Christmassy appeared. A matchbox creche, a porcelain Santa, a partridge in a pear tree. One day, Grayson dragged a pair of tree limbs in and started sawing away. When he finished, a wooden reindeer stood in the room, big enough for Maniac to ride. Of course, the tree got the most attention of all. By the time the two of them finished trimming it, their tree-trimming instincts, having languished for so many Christmases, hardly a pine needle could be seen under the tinsel and balls and whatnot. In fact, though they were delighted with their effort, the urge to trim was still full upon them. One room was simply too small to hold the spirit bursting. So they went outside and crossed the creek and tramped the woods until they came to a fine and proper evergreen, and there, their footsteps muffled by the carpet of pine needles, their every breath and whispered word arrayed in frosty white, they trimmed their second tree. This time, the ornaments were nature's brilliant red and yellow necklaces of bittersweet, pungent pine cones, wine-red clusters of sumac berries, abandoned bird-body boats of milkweed, delicate thumb-sized goblets of Queen Anne's Lace. Chapter 31 It was still dark when Maniac awoke on Christmas morning. Within an hour or two, the holiday would come bounding down the stairs and squealing round the tinseled trees of two mills. But for the moment, Christmas bidled its time outside, a purer presence. Maniac shook Grayson awake, but stayed the old man's hand when he reached to turn on the light. They bundled themselves and ventured into the silent night. Maniac carried a paper bag. Snow had fallen several days before. In much of the town, it had been plowed, shoveled, and slushed away. But in the park, along the creek, the woods, the playing field, the playground, it still lay undisturbed, save for the tracks of rabbits and squirrels. Beyond the pine trees, stars glittered like snowflakes reluctant to fall. They visited their tree. They stood silently just to be near it, letting the magic of it drift over them. In the pine patch moonlight, the Queen Anne's goblets looked for all the world like filigreed silver. They walked the creek woods all the way to the zoo, meandering wordlessly through the snowy enchantment. As if by design, they both stopped at the same spot, above the half-submerged, rooty clump of a fallen tree. Somewhere under there, they knew, was the den of a family of muskrats. The old man laid a pine branch at the doorway. Maniac whispered, Merry Christmas. They visited the animals at the zoo, at least the outdoor ones, wishing them a happy holiday. The ducks seemed particularly pleased to see them. By the time they came to the buffalo pen, dawn was showing through the trees. Before the old man finished saying, Want a boost? Maniac was up and over the fence. If Mother Buffalo was glad to see the fence-hopping human again, she didn't show it. But Baby came trotting on over, and the two of them had a warm reunion. Before leaving, Maniac reached into the paper bag and brought out a present. For you, he said. It was a scarf, or rather, three scarves tied together. He wrapped them around Baby's neck. Next time I'll get you stockings for your horns, he grinned, if you have them by then. A final nuzzle, and he was back over the fence. They headed back home as the town awoke. Breakfast was eggnog and hot tea and cookies and carols and colored lights and love. As in all happy Christmas homes, the gifts were under the tree. 
Maniac gave Grayson a pair of gloves and a woolen cap and a book. The book did not appear to be as sturdy as the others lying around. The cover was blue construction paper, and the spine, instead of being bound, was stapled. The text was hand-lettered, and the pictures were stick figures. The title was The Man Who Struck Out Willie Mays. The author's name, which Grayson read aloud with some difficulty, was Jeffrey L. McGee. Maniac, in his turn, opened packages to find a pair of gloves, a box of butterscotch crimpets, and a spanking Snow White never ever used baseball. He was overjoyed. He rushed to the old man and hugged him. The old man put up with that for a second, then pulled away. Hold on, he said. He went to one of the baseball equipment bags and reached in, tunneled down to the bottom, and came up with another package. This one wrapped crudely in newspaper. Hide and listen, he said. Didn't know if you're the kind of kid who sneaks looks. Maniac tore it open and gaped helplessly when he saw what it was. To anyone else, it was a ratty old scrap of leather, bar leather barely recognizable as a baseball glove, fit for the garbage can. But Maniac knew at once that this was Grayson's, the one he had played with all those years in the minors. It was limp, flat, the pocket long since gone. Slowly, timidly, as though entering a shrine, the boy's fingers crept into it, flexed, curled the cracked leather, brought it back to shape, to life. He laid the new ball on the palm, pressed the glove and ball together, and the glove remembered and gave way and made a pocket for the ball. The boy could not take his eyes off the glove. The old man could not take his eyes off the boy. The record player finished the Christmas polka and clicked off. And for a long time, there was silence. Five days later, the old man was dead. Chapter 32. Most mornings, Grayson would be the first one out of bed. He would turn on the space heater, visit the Banshell lavatory, then heat up some water, get breakfast ready, and finally wake the boy with a gentle shake of the shoulder. On December 30th, it was the silence that woke Maniac and the cold. The space heater wasn't on. No steaming cups sat on the table. The old man was still under the covers. Maniac went over. Grayson, he shook the old man. Grayson, he took the old man's hand. It was cold. Grayson! He didn't run to the superintendent's office. He didn't run to the nearest house. He knew. He held the cold limp hand that had thrown the pitch that had struck out Willie Mays that had betrayed the old man's stoic ways by giving him a squeeze. He began talking to the old man about places he had been on the road, about the places the two of them might have gone to, about everything. Then he began to read aloud. He read aloud all the books the old man had learned to read, and he finished with the old man's favorite, Mike Mulligan's steam shovel. When he looked out the window, it was night. He dragged his chest protectors along the old man's mat and lay down, and only then... When he closed his eyes, did he cry? The funeral, such as it was, took place on the third day of the new year. Maniac had at last gone to tell someone, the zookeeper, and from it, then on, he pretty much stayed out of the way. Grayson came to the cemetery in a wooden box. The pallbearers were unknown to Maniac. They were members of the town's trash collecting corps, and as they huffed and bent and laid the box over the hole, they smelled vaguely of pine and rotten fruit. Maniac was the only mourner. He had thought the superintendent might show, or the attendant at the Y locker room, or maybe the lady who ran the park food stand in summer. None was there. Only Maniac and the man from the funeral home, and the six pallbearers and the two men off to the side, smoking cigarettes and leaning on a hole digging tractor that made Maniac think of something. He smiled inwardly. Hey, Grayson, look, Mike Mulligan's steam shovel had a baby. 
high above, a silver plane crossed the sky, silent as a spider. A voice startled panic, startled maniac. When's he coming? It was one of the pallbearers. The man from the funeral home pushed down the top of his black leather glove to expose his watch. Should be here by now. Should have been here five minutes ago. How long are we going to wait? The funeral man shrugged. All but one of the pallbearers lit up a cigarette. Maniac wished he hadn't come. This event had nothing to do with the man who once lived in the body in the wooden box. I'm freezing my kochingas off, a pallbearer answered. Me too, said another. Hey, you know, called one of the gravediggers. We ain't waiting all day to fill in that hole. Everyone looked at the man with the long black coat. He looked again at his watch. Traffic, probably. The minister thought maniac. That's who we're waiting for. A pallbearer walked over to the funeral man. We hauled this stiff here. Ain't that enough? They only give us an hour. Another pallbearer chimed in. Let's go get some donuts. Hot coffee, baby. Loud clanks. A grave digger was striking the baby steam shovel with a spade. The funeral man sighed. He pulled out his own cigarette, lit from the glowing tip of the pallbearers. Give it two more minutes. Then we'll see. Maniac made it for, waited for one of those two minutes, searching the horizon for signs of a minister. Whatever was going to happen at the end of the next minute, he didn't want to see. So he ran. Hey, kid! They called. Yo, kid! But he was running. Running. Part 3, Chapter 33. January of that year was too cold and dry for snow. It was a month of frozen hardness of ice. Maniac drifted from hour to hour, day to day, alone with his memories, a stunned and solitary wanderer. He ate only to keep from starving, warmed his body only enough to keep it from freezing to death, ran only because there was no reason to stop. Even if the superintendent had allowed it, he could not have brought himself to stay at the bandshell. He returned only long enough to pick up a few things, a blanket, some non-perishable food, the glove, and as many books as he could squeeze into the old black satchel that had hauled Grayson's belongings around the minor leagues. Before he left for good, he got some paint and angrily brushed over the 101 on the door. During the days he ran, usually a slow jog, but sometimes he would suddenly sprint, furious, 10 or 20 second burst, as though trying to leave himself behind. Sometimes he walked, he crossed and recrossed the river, he wandered in all directions, through all the surrounding communities and townships, Bridgeport, Conshohocken, East Norton, West Norton, Jeffersonville, Plymouth, Worcester. Whenever he crossed the bridge over the school kill, he turned his eyes so as not to see the nearby P&W trestle. Even so, in his mind's eye, he saw the red and yellow trolley careening from the high track, plunging into the water, killing his parents over and over. After a while, he stopped crossing the bridge. Other than that, he went wherever there was room to go forward, along roads and alleys and railroad tracks, across fields and cemeteries and golf courses. From high above, a tracing of his roots would not have looked so hopelessly tangled as Cobble's knot. By nightfall, he was back in two mills. He would retrieve the satchel from wherever he had stashed it and find a place to endure the night. A few times, he revisited the buffalo pen where he covered himself with a second blanket of straw. Other times, his overnight quarters might be an abandoned car, an empty garage, a basement stairwell. When his original supply of food ran out, he fed himself at the zoo or at the soup kitchen down at the Salvation Army. He did odd jobs for housewives, ran errands for shopkeepers. He would not beg. One day, he found himself among monuments and cannon and rolling hills. He was in Valley Forge. 
Here, the Continental Army had suffered through a winter of their own, and the vast, stark, frozen desolation itself seemed a more proper monument than statues and stones. The only buildings here were tiny log and mortar cabins, replicas of the Army's shelters. Maniac could feel the ache swelling outward from his breast and filling the enormous, bounding spaces. He returned to town for the satchel and put himself up in one of the cabins. It was scarcely bigger than a large doghouse. The floor was dirt. There was a doorway, but no door. Several sartines fell from the back, from the back, from the blanket. He threw them outside. Let the birds have them. He wrapped himself in the blanket and lay down. He lay there all night and all the next day. Dreams pursued memories, courted and danced and coupled with them, and they became one. And the gaunt, beseeching phantoms that called to him had the ragweed feet of Washington's regulars and the faces of his mother and father and Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan and the Beals and Earl Grayson. In that bedeviled army, there would be no more recruits. No one else would orphan him. The second evening came and went. Maniac never stirred, knowing it would not be fast or easy and wanting, deserving nothing less. Grimly, patiently, he waited for death. Chapter 34 It was during the second night in the cabin that he heard the little voices. They were not soldiers' voices. I'm going in this one. No, that one. That one's bigger. I'm tired. I'm stopping. You stupid meatball. It's right here. Another two seconds. I'm staying. Great, you big jerky. Stay. I'm going to that one. Good night. Silence then. Hold on. I'm coming. That was all. The ghostly soldiers returned, their haunted eyes seeking warmth, food, life. There was no morning, only daylight in the doorway. He pushed himself up, dragged himself into the blinding light. The saltines lay on the brown frozen grass. The next cabin was nearby. January slipped an icy finger under his collar and down his back. He pulled the blanket tighter about himself, but it was too late. The finger had touched the last warm coal in his hearth, and his body, fanning the ember, shook itself violently. He walked to the next cabin, looked inside, and saw a body huddled in the corner. An eye opened, stared at him. Then in succession, three more eyes opened. The body divided and became two. Two little boys. (laughs) Get a load of this meatball! said the one with the front tooth missing. He walks around with a blanket on. Hey, Meatball, why don't you bring your mattress along, too? And your pillow, too, screeched the other. Then Missing Tooth whipped off his woolen cap and smacked Screecher in the face. Screecher retaliated, and Maniac had to step back in while the two-kid tornadoes swirled around the cabin. When they finished, they rolled into their backs, shook their legs at the ceiling, and laughed as long as they had fought. The volume coming from Screecher was incredible, as though a microphone were embedded in his throat. Finally, Missing Tooth rediscovered the stranger standing in the doorway. Hey, Meatball, you running away too? No, not really, said Maniac. Well, we are, went Screecher. Where are you going? Maniac asked. The answer came from both. Mexico. Maniac bit back a grin. When they stood, he saw they couldn't have been more than four feet tall or eight years old. Well, he said, it's good and warm down there, but it's pretty far, you know. Yeah, we know, growled Missing Tooth. You think we're meatballs like you? He grabbed a supermarket bag in the corner and opened it. Look. It was filled with candy, cupcakes, pies, and even a pack of butterscotch crimpets. Maniac's stomach rasped against itself. He remembered how thirsty he was. 
Where'd you get all this? We stole it, Screecher blurted. The other smacked him with his cap. Shut up, Piper, you stupid sausage. You don't go telling people you stole stuff. Piper returned to the cap slap. You shut up, Russell. You, I didn't tell him where we stole it. This time, the fight was over in less than a minute. But it started up again when Maniac asked where they were from. And Piper said, two mills. And Russell said, shut up. He might be a cop. And bopped him good. When they settled down, they stared at him wearily. Piper snickered. He ain't no cop. He's a kid. Yeah, sneered Russell. That's how much you know. They got cops that look like kids. That's how they catch kids. They stared at him some more. They moved in cautiously, one on either side. They opened his blanket. They patted him all over. What are we doing this for? Piper wanted to know. We're feeling for a gun, Russell explained. Oh. After the patting, they backed off. So, said Russell, you ain't a cop? Not me, said Maniac. He moved in from the doorway. I'm... And with only a moment's pause, the story came to him. A pizza delivery boy. We have a contest every week, and you two were chosen for a free pizza. The two gasped at each other. We were? Yep, a large. Where is it? Demanded Russell, glancing around. At Cobble's Corner. You have 24 hours to claim your prize. He waited while they bickered over what to do. Valley Forge was a good five or six miles from two mills. These kids might not have made it to Mexico, but they had come a long way and stayed out overnight. And someone, somewhere, must be worried sick about them. And he had a feeling they weren't kidding about stealing the food. He figured he'd better help them make up their minds. You know, he said, you're taking the long way to Mexico. If you come back to two mills with me, I'll show you a shortcut. That did it. Soon the three of them were trekking past the Washington Memorial Chapel, Russell and Piper with their bag, Maniac with his satchel. It was early afternoon when they walked into Cobble's Corner at Hector and Birch. Maniac produced his certificate for conquering Ho- Cobble's Knot, and 20 minutes later, the young runaways were attacking a large pizza with pepperoni. Maniac confined himself to three glasses of water and half a dozen crimpets. The boys agreed with Maniac that they ought to stay the night in their own house before setting out for Mexico the next morning. They were barely a block from Cobble's when Maniac heard a familiar voice. Bellowing and barreling down the street, was the fearsome fastballer, king of the Cobras, Big John McNabb himself, and he was roaring mad. Maniac might have taken off, but he found himself clung to and clutched by the two little urchins. They huddled behind him like babies on a possum's back as Giant John came red-faced and huffing up to them. Where you been? he yelled. As Maniac considered what to say, the urchins peeped out from behind him. We wasn't no place, John. We was right here with this here kid, and he ain't no cop either. We checked him out. For the first time, Giant John looked straight at Maniac. A smile crossed his face. Well, well, the frog man, the smile vanished. So what are you doing with my little brothers? Chapter 35 It took a while for everything to get straightened out. First, Giant John had to be convinced that Maniac was not kidnapping his brothers. Then the brothers had to do some trembling and clinging while John finished lambasting them for running away, which apparently they did about every other week. Then, when the brothers found out that their pizza person was none other than the famous Maniac McGee, the very same one who had blasted their big brother's fastballs to smithereens and finished him with a home 
run frog. Well, it took a good five minutes of rolling on the sidewalk to get all the laughing out of their systems, which of course got giant John more than a little steamed, prompting Maniac, who didn't like seeing John disgrace before his little brothers, to say, yeah, but didn't John tell you what happened the next day? And his brother said, no, what? And giant John said, huh? And Maniac winked at John and crossed his fingers. Sure, John, you remember. Wink, wink. At the Little League field the next day, you said I was lucky that you threw me all fastballs because you weren't ready to reveal your secret pitch, the one you've been working on, remember? Wink. McNabb nodded dumbly. And so I said, well, come on, I can hit anything. Pitch it to me. And you pitched it, and I missed it by a mile, and you kept pitching it to me all day long, and I never hit even a foul ball on it. What was the pitch? What was the pitch? Chained the urchins. It was, Maniac paused for dramatic buildup, the stop ball. The stop ball? Yeah, and you should have seen it. It comes right up to the plate, looking all fat and easy to belt, and then, just when you take your swing... Maniac got into his batter stance and demonstrated. It sort of stops. And your bat just whiffs the air. He whiffed at an imaginary stop ball. Wow, said the brothers, gazing up at their big brother. And so Maniac was invited to accompany the brothers McNabb to their home. Despite the cold, the front door was wide open. Maniac could smell the inside before he could see it. The first thing he did was see the yellow, short-haired mongrel looking innocently up at him while taking a leak in the middle of the living room floor. Clean that up, John Russell. John ordered Russell. Clean that up, Russell ordered Piper. Piper just walked on by. After closing the front door, which was surprisingly heavy, Maniac found a stack of newspapers in a corner. He laid it all over the puddle to soak in, then gave himself a tour of the downstairs. Maniac had seen some amazing things in his lifetime, but nothing as amazing as that house. From the smell of it, he knew this wasn't the first time an animal had relieved itself on the rugless floor. In fact, in another corner, he spotted a form of relief that could not be soaked up by newspapers. Cans and bottles lay all over, along with crusts, peelings, cores, scraps, rinds, wrappers, everything you could normally find in a garbage can. And everywhere, there were raisins. As he walked through the dining room, something, an old tennis ball, hit him on the top of the head and bounced away. He looked up into the laughing faces of Russell and Piper. The hole in the ceiling was so big they could both could have just jumped through it at once. He ran a hand along one wall. The peeling paint came off like cornflakes. Nothing could be worse than the living and dining rooms, yet the kitchen was. A jar of peanut butter had crashed to the floor. Someone had gotten a running start, jumped into it, and skied a brown one-footed track to the stove. On the table were what appeared to be the remains of an autopsy performed upon a large bird, possibly a crow. The refrigerator contained two food groups, mustard and beer. The raisins here were even more abundant. He spotted several of them moving. They weren't raisins. They were roaches. The front door opened, and seconds later, a man clomped into the kitchen. He wore no winter jacket, only a sleeveless green sweatshirt, which ballooned over his enormous stomach. Tattoos blued on his upper arms. His hands were nearly pure black. Stale body odor mingled with that of fries and burgers coming from the Burger King bag he held. Dropping the bag next to the bird remains, he bellowed, Chow! and took a beer from the fridge. He downed a good half of it in one swig, belched, double-clutched, and belched again. He had to know someone besides himself was standing in the kitchen 
And just as obviously, he didn't care. Two floor-quaking crashes came down from the dining room. Geronimo! Geronimo! Russell and Piper had taken the direct route via the hole. What do you bring, Dad? Whoppers? Yeah, whoppers. They tore into the bag like jackals into a into carrion. Plastic flew, fries flew. They both wanted the same whopper. Mashed between their tug, tugging fists, the whopper splurted sauce and cheese and pickle chips. Then it split. Russell lurched backward into the kitchen table with his half. Piper lurched backward into the opposite direction and, with nothing to stop him, sailed right through the cellar doorway and down the cellar steps. The final thud was followed by a truck horn blast of Piper's laughter. When Giant John ambled in, the father said, Get the blocks? No, grunted John, pulling out a pair of whoppers. He tossed one to Maniac. We need more, he growled to the father. John didn't answer. We need more. I heard. McNabb smashed the tabletop. Three fries and a bird wing jumped to the floor. Now. John walked out, nonchalantly munching. I was busy. The rest of the night was scenes from a loony movie. Scene. McNabb, the father, swaggers bare-armed out the front door, bellowing back, Do your homework. Scene. Maniac retrieves the wet newspapers from the living room. There are no waste baskets in the house. He finds a trash can in the backyard next to a pile of cinder blocks. He dumps the soggy papers in the can, which is empty. Scene. Small turds of an unfamiliar shape appear here and there along the baseboard of the first floor. Please don't be rats. Maniac portrays. Prays. Scene. The Cobras come in. They glare at Maniac, but John, Giant John tells them to lay off. They raid the fridge for a beer. They smoke cigarettes. They belch and fart. They curse. Russell and Piper, Kitty Cobras, pop their own beer cans, guzzle, swagger, belch, smirk, s- smoke, curse. Scene. Football game. From the front of the living room to the back of the living room, except for space, it is everything a regular game has. Running, passing, blocking, tackling, kicking. There is furniture to get in the there is little furniture to get in the way. Ordinarily the windows wouldn't last five minutes, but the windows of this house were boarded up with plywood. Body blocked cobras f- fly into the walls. The house flinches. Scene A faint rustling noise behind the stove. Oh no, rats. Maniac dares to look. It's a turtle, a box turtle, munching on an old whopper lettuce. Phew. Scene. The boys' bedroom. Russell and Piper lie prone at the hole. They fire toy submachine guns. Tut, 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 tut. At the cobras, heading out the front door. Piper jumps up and blows Maniac away, killing him in at least, 50, at least 15 times. That's how we're going to do it. Bam, bam, bam. The guns will be real, says Russell, still prone and firing the stock of his toy gun tight against his cheek. Yeah, squawks Piper, real. He flops back to the floor, sprays the hole downstairs. Soon they'll start coming in. Bam, bam, bam. Who? Says Maniac. The enemy, says Russell. Who's that? Said Maniac. Russell stops firing long enough to send Maniac a where have you been look. What do you think? He sneers. He points to the red barrel of the sum of the submachine gun toward the bedroom door towards the east the east end the heavy front door scene darkness silence sometime early morning maniac lies between the two brothers on the bed do cockroaches climb bedposts unable to sleep asking himself what am i doing here remembering hester and lester on his lap grayson's hug corn muffin in the toaster oven thinking 
Who's the orphan here, anyway? Hearing, as he last lowers himself into sleep's waters, a door slam, a slurred voice. Do your homework. Fearing, will I float?